Welcome to Mince's podcast, From the Edge, where attorneys at the firm talk to entrepreneurs, CEOs, people starting companies, and other in the tech and venture community that are disrupting industries and changing the world. Mince is a nationally leading law firm helping emerging growth companies achieve success. For other really interesting Mince Edge podcasts with great insights, check out minceedge.com. My name is Will Perkins, and I'm a corporate lawyer and co-head of our technology practice here at Mince, where I focus on high-growth tech companies, from startups to public companies and their strategic investments. It's my pleasure today to welcome Phil Gager, Phil's managing director on the venture debt team at Stiefel, based here in Boston. Stiefel's a global financial services company that many of us know for its investment banking and underwriting work, particularly in life sciences and technology but which has recently built out a venture team as of July 2019. Phil is part of that venture debt team with decades of experience. For me, this is an exciting chance to understand venture debt more closely, as so many of my early stage clients consider, and in many cases take on venture debt. While we'll let the discussion play out freely today, our goal is to leave our audience with four key takeaways. One. What is venture debt and what are its primary use cases? Two, who should, and maybe more importantly, who should not take on venture debt? Three, where's the market today? What are the basic terms? And four, how should a company act and behave once it has taken on venture debt? With that introduction, let me say welcome to Phil, and I think we'll jump into these topics and explore many others with you today. Great, thanks Will. So Phil, I guess maybe even a little history, but can you take us through what is venture debt and what are its primary use cases? Sure. Well, venture debt is a relatively new asset class, if you call you know about a 25-year history relatively new. Initially, the roots trace back to equipment leasing, where equipment lessors would uh, finance whether it was uh, server racks, supercomputers, or uh, mass spectrometers on the life science front. They moved from uh, providing equipment leases as companies evolved to be less asset heavy to venture debt, which was underlied instead of by assets, uh, hard assets, by uh, investors' ability and willingness to continue supporting the companies. And as that evolved, you saw a number of different entrants into the market. You had banks lending off their balance sheets, which were providing the ancillary services associated with corporate banking, as well as venture debt funds and BDCs that were all providing debt in in this space. It's probably worth just delving a bit into the different structures and motivations of these funding sources, the venture banks were lending off their own balance sheet. So they're taking in deposits and lending uh, that cash back to these early stage customers. That cost of funding is significantly lower than what you would see from a venture debt fund who takes in money from limited partners and oftentimes leverages that with a warehouse line. Um, Therefore, I think it's fair to say that the most conservative bulletproof borrowers are often best served by the venture banks. If you instead are a company that's looking to take leverage to the max, the venture debt fund or the BDC might be a better option for you. All of these deals have a warrant element to them 
as well as uh, the stream of interest and oftentimes a few fees that come on the front end, whether that's a commitment fee or in some cases a back-end fee to get the lender to the return they're looking for. No, that's great. And thanks for that background. If I could, let me just define BDC and maybe you could elaborate a little bit on what that means in terms of structure. Sure. The, the BDCs are special purpose vehicles funded often in the public markets that go after a particular lending asset class. And, and it would take an attorney to spec out the differences from the actual LP structured funds. But um, that is a way that a lot of these uh, funds go to market. Great. Thanks for that. And you, you begin to hint at something we definitely want to get into. So why don't we jump right into it? Uh, basic terms of venture debt. And, and in my mind, as I hear it from many of my clients, they have perhaps made it through the seed stage. They raised Series A, classic venture preferred financing. They intend fully to raise a Series B financing, but perhaps have further product development or, or growth before they want to raise that Series B at a more favorable valuation. And I continually hear, well, let me extend the runway here, buy myself some time right. before that funding with venture debt. Right. And from there, clients typically will speak to a few lenders and, and come back with a set of terms. But maybe if you could just outline for listeners the, the basic terms you would expect from a venture lender to, we'll just imagine, your classic tech company. Sure. I'll divide it up into two categories. One would be the working capital structure, and the other would be term debt. And the working capital structure is appropriate for companies that are at a commercial stage that have revenues where they can either do a traditional accounts receivable financing, typically a percentage of your AR. The other option would be a monthly recurring revenue based facility. And that's very appropriate in today's uh, software as a service market and also other things as a service where you can look at your recurring revenue look at some churn metrics and customer acquisition to figure out what the right multiple on monthly recurring revenue as a borrowing base is. So that's those are asset bases and sort of calibrate based upon the company's performance and in the eyes of a lender, a more secure credit risk. For let's say it's an R&D phase robotics company or a biotech company that has no hopes of near-term revenue, but the hopes of a major exit at some point. They instead would take on term debt, either to buy cap capital equipment or simply extend runway and sort of arbitrage uh, valuation. So in that case, you're referring to that bridge. And in that case, maybe you're buying yourself three, four, five more months for that biotech company to get additional data in or that robotics company to sign an important collaboration deal with an OEM. That's very helpful. And in both of those contexts, there is a, a loan and there's an interest rate. In terms of interest rates, I imagine they fluctuate based on, I guess I'm not sure, maybe it's a Fed rate, maybe it's competition in the market to lend, but the interest rates fluctuate. Is it 
fair to even try and put a, a loose range on that? I know it will vary company to company, industry to industry. Sure. It's a risk-derived interest rate. And typically, they're based off of uh, the floating rate of LIBOR or Prime. And I think it's fair to bracket the bank cost of the funds in the Prime plus 2 to 4% range and the venture debt funds in sort of the Prime plus 4 to 6% range. That's very helpful. And of course, we're recording this here in 2019. It may be listened to in later years. How much does that range fluctuate in your period of time working in the market? Has, has there been quite a range or a fluctuation in pricing or has it been pretty steady? Uh, I think the spreads have stayed relatively steady, uh, maybe compressed a bit, but uh, you know they move with the banks and the funds cost of capital. So they, they, they move based upon where the Fed is essentially and um, also on the perceived risk of the borrower. Oh, very helpful. Phil, I wonder if you could comment generally. We talked about interest, but I always hear warrants are a key part of sure. the transaction here. What are the range of terms and what do these equity kickers look like? Sure. So given the risk that both the funds and the banks are taking, they're counting on warrants to absorb some of those losses. So call it one out of five, one out of 10 companies warrants will be in the money and sort of eclipse the losses that they're expected to take. Um, those warrants are typically priced as a percentage of the loan amount, and they can either be awarded on the front end of a deal or based upon the amount of loan proceeds drawn. Very helpful. So when people generally talk of warrant coverage, uh, little simple example, make sure I have this right. If it's a, a million dollar loan, and I don't know if 10% warrant coverage would be in the zone of reasonable, that would be 10% of $1 million, so $100,000. The company's equity, it's a warrant for Series A preferred. If that was $1 per share Series A preferred, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we're talking about $100,000, the 10% of $1 million, divided by $1 per share. Your bank's warrant would be exercisable for 100,000 shares of, of Series A preferred stock. Correct. So it's usually priced based upon the most recent rounds price. Very helpful. Uh, here's a question, and I ask this, and I will tell you what I see in, in M&A contexts where I eventually sell a client who has taken, perhaps much earlier in their life, venture debt. There is often a warrant on the books, often a seven to 10 year warrant, I'd say, is a fairly typical term. They tend to be longer term warrants. I don't see the banks exercising those warrants, but rather hanging on to them probably until the full term of the warrant in hopes of an exit prior to that, of course. Is that the norm? Do you see banks ever exercise their warrants earlier to I think become an actual shareholder? I don't see the banks do that. I think the funds have more latitude to be creative. I believe the banks like to set up a regiment and follow that regiment to the T. That makes sense. Uh, let's turn a little bit. We've covered 
venture debt, the key terms, maybe primary use cases even. We talked about companies with revenue. We talked about companies looking to extend the runway. Let's talk about, in your mind, who should and who should not take on venture debt. I feel like many companies explore it. Uh, not all of them take it on. Sometimes they don't like the pricing or the terms. But I feel like there must be companies out there who, who shouldn't have even thought about exploring it in the first place and it was a distraction rather than a, a useful tool for them. If you could comment on that. Absolutely. I've seen companies uh, that fall into the category of research and development where perhaps they have a novel molecule in the biotech space that they're chasing and they have essentially one shot on goal. Binary risk. They raise a nice round of equity based upon the blue sky of this uh, molecule finding its target and layer atop that venture debt. They take it to the clinic and it, it doesn't work. What's left? Nothing. Nothing. And the uh, equity investors have their LPs to answer to and cannot throw good money after bad. There's no resi residual IP value, so there's nothing to get make the lender whole. And the entrepreneur who may believe there's some value to be extracted down the road has no options because that IP, for whatever it's worth, will be fire sailed, and be the the uh, which will be the dominion of the lender. Right. So that. That, uh, that maturity date or the fact that a lender does need to be repaid at some point will ultimately shorten that entrepreneur's ability to perhaps limp along after a failure and try and repurpose that company. For sure. Or let's try, try another angle on that for the tape. Um, in another case, you have companies that might be on an upward trajectory take on a massive round of venture debt and that trajectory flattens a bit. And when they go back to market to raise additional equity, investors look at that debt overhang and don't want their equity going towards repaying the debt. So it can be uh, a significant hangover if you're going back to the equity markets to raise more money. Very helpful thought. Let me clarify one thing which you said earlier, companies with revenues. That's revenues as distinct from profits. It's certainly the case that you will lend in the right circumstances to companies that are not profitable. Correct. Absolutely. I mean, I have never done a deal for a company that's profitable. That's the, that's the interesting part about our business. Um, and for those early stage companies, we're really underwriting against the VC's ability and willingness to continue supporting the company. For the later stage company, where there's significant recurring revenue, AR, product market fit, something that's really catching, you're instead underwriting to enterprise value. Very helpful. Let me ask one question that's been on my mind. I have never seen it in the venture debt context, and I wonder if it sends off alarm bells, or, or should send off alarm bells in the entrepreneur's mind. Does a true venture debt lender, a repeat player in the industry like a Stiefel, do they ever look for personal guarantees or what are the other, it's maybe comfort from the venture investor they'll continue to support? What are the other uh, protections? Sure. Lenders? So so a couple ways to answer that. 
oftentimes with the bootstrapped, thinly capitalized, perhaps seed-funded uh, enterprise that might never raise venture debt or venture capital, rather, they would need a personal guarantee to get a line of credit. And that might be the right choice for that entrepreneur. Okay. However, if you have an institutionally based cap table, you shouldn't personally guarantee the line. Very helpful advice. Thanks for that. Where is the market today? And I ask this on a day where there's perhaps a lot of uncertainty, at least in the public equity markets. People are wondering about rates. Is it a good environment to raise venture debt today? Is it trending towards more favorable? I guess I'm asking from the companies or the entrepreneur's perspective, perhaps not the lender's perspective, but how do you think about the market? I think we are fairly insulated for the time being from the gyrations in the public markets. Over the last 10, 15, 20 years, venture debt has stabilized as a asset class that's very useful for entrepreneurs and VCs when used appropriately. There historically were three or four players uh, in the bank space and another three or four on the fund side who were consistently in this market. Today, I think that's uh, doubled, if not tripled. So there's many, many sources of funding. I think what I'd advise uh, entrepreneurs to do is really understand the motivations of that institution and whether they're in it for the long haul, how much they value relationships, and also how good an advocate your banker will be for you internally. Because they're going to be the ones telling the story of your company to their credit committees and seeking accommodations for your company. That's a very interesting perspective. And maybe if I can dig in on that, because I think as a lawyer advising startups about their equity financing source, I often point out that this is a relationship. You're, you're building a team here. And while all VCs checks are equal, not all VCs, their teams, and not all equity investors are going to be as uh, supportive or as part of the team. It sounds like it's much the same for a lender in your minds in terms of perhaps you're looking as much at the personal relationship with the bankers and the team supporting you as you are the bank itself. For sure. I think uh, you need to have faith that your lender understands your business, has the ability to communicate effectively with your investors. And for your part as a, as a borrower, what I advise is transparency with your lenders and keeping them apprised of all material developments with your company. Bad news is a reality of startup life. And the one thing that bankers, much like VCs, don't like is surprise or being blindsided by something that happened three weeks ago. And, and that allows uh, that, whether it's the VC advocating for a next round of financing or a venture banker advocating for whether it be an interest deferment or an additional slug of capital to have the credibility when they talk to their committees. That's great. And that's a great transition to one of our topics we wanted to make sure we hit today. That is, how should a company behave maybe on the eve of taking venture debt and then once they've closed on the debt? And it sounds like transparency is certainly one uh, topic there. A question I had and wanted to dig into are 
audited financials required? Certainly some later stage venture financings will mandate audited financials, but for any company thinking venture debt could be a path, do they need it to close the venture debt, audited financials, or do they need to supply them after? The to supply them after is the way we're typically set up and we'll need them at close if they are required by the existing shareholders. Very helpful. Shifting gears, what industries are well suited or where do you see the most activity in venture debt? You know, life sciences, biotech, med device, technology. There are many ways to slice and dice these industries, but what in your minds uh, is a good industry? I think broadly speaking, if you were to look at the venture capital industry and look at where dollars are flowing in that market, those are the spaces where we are playing. Historically, that has been high tech and healthcare broadly, places where you have both the understanding that there's continued investor support and two, the understanding that there is IP generation that presumably has a residual value that would get a lender out. Now, with the advent of more consumer-facing startups and online, you know, think the um, recurring revenue box that comes to you once a month, that's morphed a little bit. So you have more of these consumer-oriented mm -hmm. plays where venture debt can be applicable. Oh, interesting. I wonder if you might comment on, no names, but a situation where you really had to work through some challenges and any lessons learned for the entrepreneurs listening? Sure. It was interesting uh, working through a situation with an ad tech company. Um, you know, five, six years ago, ad tech was booming. Dollars were going there from an equity standpoint. What we saw evolve was that that market uh, experienced pricing pressure and increased competition from the likes of uh, Facebook and others. So. We put a loan in place for to this particular ad tech company, large term loan. As the company grew, we offset that term loan with an accounts receivable line, so an asset based line. As that company's revenues began to contract, we had to have some workshop discussions with management and say, listen, how do we shore up our position as your lender and make sure that we get paid back? And they were absolutely collaborative, absolutely transparent. And we worked our way out of that deal together to a place where that company with a significantly diminished enterprise value could see its way to a positive exit. That's great. I wonder if you might comment, we talked a lot about the interest rate. What, what are the costs? I, and I, I don't know, tech company taking on a $3 million term loan. There's a warrant. We talked about warrants. Yes. Obviously, a company has company counsel's legal costs to bear. My understanding is that the borrowers typically bear the expense of lender's counsel and also perhaps origination fees, other fees. Sure. But what are the true costs? Sure. I mean, the dirty secret in lending are all these, you know, front end, back end, sideways fees, that the anniversary fees. Um, we like to be very transparent about what the fees are. Initially, when we receive a signed term sheet to commit to the next stage of diligence, we want a check for ten dollars to $20,000 to get started. And we can oftentimes apply that towards legal fees. 
Um, I think you were mentioning a two to three million dollar facility. I'd say ballparking legal fees, twenty to forty thousand um, dollars. I think that all depends on the quality of your counsel and the number of reps they've had papering these deals. So I would advise folks out there to make sure you have counsel like Mints who has seen and done these deals repetitively. Phil, let me ask you one question, given Stiefel's recent entrance into the market, along with many others, as you noted earlier, why did a firm, a financial services firm like Stiefel, come into the venture debt market in your mind? Sure. I think the initial thesis was that we have investment bankers that are advising companies at a strategic level, often just before a transaction. And we saw the ability to get a bit upstream with those same entrepreneurs and have something else in our bag. The, the, the big idea here is to serve companies from cradle to exit. That being provide venture debt and banking services to that entrepreneur early on, see them through the transaction with our investment banking resources. And once they're newly minted, Millionaires presumably manage the money for them as our uh, wealth management team. Has that played out in practice? It's what's been remarkable is the amount of deal flow we're unearthing from both our investment banking team and our financial advisors. And many of these companies are sort of in in backwaters of the venture industry and perhaps overlooked by other lenders. No, that's very interesting, and I certainly wish you guys all the luck. I think from my perspective, with startup companies looking for financing, the, the more entrance uh, and the value they're bringing to the table, so much the better. Phil, I wanna thank you so much for joining us here at From the Edge today. It was wonderful having you. I hope all listeners leave with a greater understanding of venture debt generally. It's important for emerging and growing tech companies to understand all avenues of capital available to them at each stage of their development. In our From the Edge podcast and on our Mint's Edge site, we probably likely focus more on equity financing, and this venture debt topic sheds important light on yet another tool to finance growth. Thank you again. This is Will Perkins, and I'm signing off From the Edge.